0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at CandeoChurch.com. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. If we haven't met, my name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Christine just read for us, we'll be in Titus 2 this morning. So I grew up and I went to Southeast Polk. I have three brothers. All four of us were on the Southeast Polk wrestling team. And one of my favorite traditions for Southeast Polk wrestling is a thing that we call Ram City. So Ram City on Wednesday nights after practice ended, you'd have a wrestling meet on Thursday night. And uh, let's just say we were going to Johnston to wrestle the dragons who we always beat. Dakota Jackson was a dragon at the same time I was a Ram. But Wednesday, practice would end and Coach Christensen, he would just kind of look at us and say, Ram City. And then the coaches would back away. And then one of the seniors would step into the middle of the room and the whole team would gather around him and he would deliver the Ram City hype speech, which usually involved like knocking down front doors and we're gonna go into Johnston and slay the dragon. You know, Things like that would come out. And it was just an epic, epic hype speech. And it was one of my favorite traditions every Wednesday afternoon. Well, the very last Wednesday of the year, what this senior would do is he would nominate the next year's Ram City hype speech guy. There would just be one senior for the entire year, so he would pick the junior that was going to take the reins, handle the baton of Ram City for the next year. And what that tradition was, it was way more than just a hype speech on Wednesday nights before our Thursday. Meet. It really represented this idea that our coach had that if he was going to instill the work ethic, the culture, the, the things that he wanted our freshmen and sophomores to embrace, then the seniors in the room had to pass that on. They had to be the ones through their actions, through their speeches, to really show us as the freshmen, as the sophomores, what it meant to be a Southeast Polk wrestler. The older guys in the room teaching the younger guys in the room. Coach Christensen, he knew that if we were going to be a successful team for a long, long time, this was the best way to implement the culture that he wanted in his room. And, and it's worked. Southeast Polk is an incredible program. We just can't seem to beat WSR. Don't know what's up with that. waverly Shell Rock just keeps getting us. But uh, So that was what he did. Now, that same dynamic of the older passing on to the younger, that's the exact same dynamic that we're going to see this morning in Titus 2. We're coming right on the heels of the section of false teaching. And Paul, he tells Titus, hey, in Crete, as false teachers emerge, the reactive measures are for the elders to be vigilant, to step in and shepherd in those situations. But this morning, he's going to look at Titus, and he's going to say, contrary to the false teachers, you do this. And he's gonna to begin to describe the best preventative measures against false teaching. The best measures to ensure that a church is healthy for years and years and years to come. And what we're gonna see is that the best measure against false teaching, the best way to be a healthy church is for the older generation to faithfully entrust the gospel to the next generation. For the older believers in your church to faithfully pass on the culture of our church to the next generation, to not let the baton of gospel faithfulness drop with your generation, but to constantly be focused on the next generation. So that's what we're going to see this morning. He's going to unpack how this dynamic plays out in four different groups, older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. We're going to be looking at the first three this morning. Next week, we'll hit younger men. But what does it look like for our church to be a multi-generational church with a next generation focus? Let me reread Titus 2.1 for us. Here's what Paul instructs Titus. He says, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. Here's the dynamic that's happening in Titus 2. You've got older believers encouraging, teaching younger believers. We'll see next week as we continue in verses 6 and 8 that Titus was to be an example to the younger men. This is the dynamic that is to be present in the church, multi generational. Passing on gospel faithfulness to the next generation. So before we dive in to each of these three first groups, I want to pull back and just talk about what does it mean to be a next generation church or a multi-generational church with a next generation focus? That's one of the key value statements that we have at Candeo. What does that mean? Well, there are two key elements in that statement. First, multi-generational. Second, a next generation focus. So why meant multi-generational? Well, for a a church family to be healthy, we need every generation represented. It's not enough to just have a kind of one slice of kind of a demographic, age demographic. We need to have every generation represented. Just like a healthy family has three, four, maybe even five generations present in the life of that family at any time. A healthy church is multigenerational with the older generation uh, passing on wisdom and their faith to the next generation, being examples to us. And then also, though, with a focus on the next generation, faithfully entrusting sound teaching to the upcoming and emerging younger generation. This is one of the greatest protections for the church, the older entrusting the gospel to the younger It's this dynamic that keeps a church from dying as one generation teaches the next. And that is why we are focused on the next generation as a multi-generational church. Paul knew this was one of the greatest preventions against false teaching, against a church decaying. So that's why we constantly say that's our value here. Now, when it comes to the next generation, historically, there's been two approaches that the church has taken. You might be asking, why is this so important? Why is this one of our key values? Well, we've seen two approaches historically taken and both have consequences. Here's the first approach that churches have typically taken when it comes to approaching the next generation. The first approach is a church family against the next generation. A church family against the next generation. What we've seen over decades in the life of the church is there are, there's a propensity for the older generation to despise the upcoming and emerging generation, to fail to empower them with leadership, to fail in their responsibility to entrust the gospel to them. Instead, the older generation resists them, despises them, finds them annoying and foolish, finds their generational kind of habits or trends just absurd. And so instead of empowering and discipling, investing in the next generation, the older generation retains the reins of leadership as long as they possibly can, suppressing the emerging generation. That is a church family against the next generation. What is the consequence of that? of that approach? Well, what it created through the 90s and the 2000s were a bunch of churches of the next generation. So not churches that were for the next generation, not multi-generational ch- generational churches that were next generation, it was just a bunch of churches that were just the next generation. So what you saw throughout the 2000s were a bunch of young leaders who felt uh, suppressed in their context by the older believers that were leading them, And so they just went off and began their own churches that were just full of people in their 20s that weren't tethered to the wisdom of older believers. And what was the consequence of that? Well, so many of the moral failures of leaders in the church today that make the headlines are from churches that were started by these young leaders, Leaders who were 29, who were upset and frustrated by the older generation, refusing to empower them, refusing to, to be innovative, so they just went off, did their own thing, and saw a lot of growth, saw explosive church movements happen, but because it wasn't tethered to the wisdom and integrity of the older generation, it has led to so much pain and hurt. There are news stories after news stories over the last decades of churches like this, leaders who didn't have the voice of wisdom in their life. There weren't just consequences for the churches of the next generation. There were also consequences for the older churches that refused to empower and be focused on the next generation. Why are there so many churches that are small with their mortgage paid off that have seeped into irrelevance? Small churches that are only, the only people there are the older generation. There's no vibrancy, there's no life. It's because in their refusal to empower, invest, and disciple the next generation, they began to decay. No relevance, no vibrancy. That's a church family against the next generation. The second approach is better, but it still has its consequences. Here's approach two, a church family with the next generation a church family with the next generation. The next generation's present, there's youth that attend, there are college students that attend, there are young families that attend. They are there, but the ministries to them are little more than just there. They're not the heartbeat of the church. Maybe they offer a youth group, but it's just kind of off in the youth group room, and that's kind of where it stays. But the church isn't oriented around how do we invest in the next generation? They just say, hey, we have a youth group that's for you, and we're just glad that you're here. We have you, and they feel like that's enough. What is the consequence of that? Well, the consequence is that 66% of students walk away from the church at graduation. LifeWay Studies did a research study back in 2019 and surveyed young adults who had been a part of a church growing up, and they found that 66% of students who grew up in the church, who at one point regularly attended the church, would walk away when they moved to college. Here are the top five reasons that these uh, former students gave. 34% said I left the church because I moved to college and stopped attending. 32% said church members seemed judgmental. 29%, I didn't feel connected in my church. 25%, I disagreed with their stance on political and social issues. 24% work responsibilities prevented me from attending. Here was the conclusion from the Lifeway study. They said, for the most part, people aren't leaving the church out of bitterness, the influence of college atheists, or the renunciation of their faith. What the research tells us may be even more concerning for Protestant churches. There was nothing about the church experience or faith foundation of those teenagers that caused them to seek out a connection to a local church once they entered a new phase of life. The time they spent with activity in the church was simply replaced by something else. They were there, but that's all. There was no real connection Maybe they had the activity of youth group. Maybe they had the activities of VBS. Maybe they had the activities of church camp, but they were just activities. No real connection. And so what happened? Well, as soon as they moved, they walked away. What's the solution? We need a third approach. And here's the third approach. It's to be a church family for the next generation. Not against not with, not of, but for, a church family for the next generation. We have to be a church that engages the emerging generation, and that includes one-year-olds to 13-year-olds to 18-year-olds to 24-year-olds to 29-year-olds with, with kids, 29-year-old dads trying to figure it out. We need you. Our faith and our church depend on it. So this is the big question then. How do we become a church family for the next generation? Well, Paul's answer is very simple. Embrace the role God has assigned you. Embrace the unique role that God is calling you to as an individual member in the body of the church. Well, what is that role? Well, Paul is going to highlight that in these four stations: older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. But Behind all of these, there is one word that could describe what that role is. One word that could describe the assignment God has given to every single believer in this room. And this one word is not reserved for really talented people or influential Christians or Christians who have seminary degrees. It's an assignment, a role that's yours. If you've ever found yourself wondering, what's my role in a next generation focused church? One word. One word that answers how we are, we are to be a church for the next generation, discipleship. Discipleship, that is your assignment, to offer discipleship or to receive discipleship. That is your assignment and that is how we become a church family for the next generation. So what does discipleship look like? Well, we're gonna walk through Titus 2, 1 through 5 and look at these three groups. So he starts with those assigned to offer discipleship, older men, older women. If you've got Titus 2 still open, Titus, look at verse 1. Here's what he says, starting with older men. He says, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Now, Paul's specifically addressing Titus here. He's including Titus in the instructions to the older men. Later, he's gonna say down in verse six six through eight, he'll say, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your speech. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So Titus was to proclaim sound teaching. He was to have his life be an example of dignity, integrity, of good works to young men. And even though that's to Titus specifically, that is also true more generally of older men. These specific instructions to Titus apply to older men in our church generally. To teach with sound teaching, to be an example to all of us of pursuing good works, of dignity, of integrity, Titus and the older men of the church were called to teach and be an example, to show us what it looks like to pursue good works with ambition, to be marked by dignity and integrity. That was the content of their discipleship sound teaching and the testimony of their life. But that means that their life had to be worth emulating. Look at verse 2. Here's the character of a discipler. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. The first question of discipleship is actually, is your life worth replicating in the life of someone else? You want a disciple and that is a great desire, but first let's step back. Do you have a life that should be emulated? Here are the things that he highlights. Is there a pattern of self-control? You are disciplined and able to restrain yourself from sin. Is your life worthy of respect? The way you work, the way you lead your family, the outcomes that we can observe of the choices and decisions you have made. Is it worthy of respect? Are you sensible, wise and understanding, level-headed and able to bring counsel and advice, make sound decisions? Are you sound in faith, love, and endurance? You have an intimate faith with Christ. It's sound. You have a healthy relationship with him. Love, you are marked by gentleness, compassion, a care and tenderness towards other people. Endurance. The course of your life has demonstrated endurance and faithfulness. Now, Paul is not saying you have to be perfect in these. But what he is saying is that we should be able to observe in you that these are a pattern of your life. So if someone looked at your life, are these the characteristics they would see if you're an older man? Can you legitimately say to others and to young men, follow my example of integrity and dignity. See how I pursue good works. Older men, you are our fathers of the faith. We need you. We need to see your life, to see the example of it, to be encouraged by it. We need your wisdom. We need you to teach us sound doctrine, sound teaching, things that are consistent with sound teaching. Embrace your call. Embrace your assignment to disciple us. Older women, He starts with the character of the discipler. Again, verse three, it says in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. Once again, Paul is highlighting that the most effective tool in the discipler's tool belt is the character of their life. This is true in parenting, right? What is so often said? The ways our kids learn are often caught not taught. That's also true in discipleship. Teaching is important, but the greatest impact is having proximity to someone's life that is worth emulating. For older women, Paul specifically highlights reverent behavior, avoiding slander, and not being a slave to excessive drinking. Reverent behavior. You live with an awareness of God and his holiness. Your behavior is shaped by that awareness. Not slanders. you avoid the sin of spreading false gossip. Not slaves to excessive drinking. Once again, self-control is present. Self-control is gonna be present for all four groups. You have the ability to restrain your desires. You have the ability to exercise self-control over alcohol. The way you interact with alcohol should inspire others because of your ability to control it. So that's the character of the disciple. What's the content of the older women? Look at the end of verse 3. They are to teach what is good. Disciple, teach. Older women teach what is good. Now what are you to teach? Look at verse 4. So that they may encourage the young women to live to love their husbands and to love their children to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. What are you to teach? Well, he highlights seven qualities, to love their husbands, love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands. You're to teach how we are to embrace The goodness of their, you're to teach young women how they are to embrace the goodness of their role as Christian, as mother, as wife, as worker, as Christ follower. What's implied in that? What's implied is that there are actually things about being a godly woman that the only people who can teach that are godly women that I, as Natalie's husband, there are actually things that I am incapable of teaching her about how to love me as her husband. I need you, that there are things that I am incapable of teaching her about what it looks like to be a godly mother. I need you older women. There are certain things about godly womanhood that only godly women can teach one another. And if women are going to understand the the beauty of what godly womanhood is, we need older women to teach. We need older women to teach what is good. Older women, you have a unique calling to disciple younger women in in our church. And it's a calling that only you can fulfill, no one else which means if the women of our church, the young women of our church, are gonna be marked by godliness of life, they have to learn it from you. Invest significant amounts of time teaching them to follow Christ with purity, self-control, kindness, to love and submit to their husbands, to love their children and raise them up to know Christ. One of the most fun things about being at Candeo is that is so true of the women of this church. We have Titus 2 women here. There are so many examples, it actually feels a little dangerous to call out the older women and give them as an example. It's like, oh, you're old. Like, don't know if I want to do that from stage. (laughs) But there's so many examples of mature, godly women in our church doing this every single week, It's gonna happen this month in our women's Job study, March 21st at 6.30 p.m. Sign up by the end of this week. It'd really help us order materials, Tuesday nights. But it's gonna happen there. Older women in an amazing context where they get to sit at tables with younger women teaching them God's word, teaching them how it applies, the lessons we're gonna learn from Job, how it applies to their role as wife, as mom, as Christ follower, it happens every week as incredible women are investing their lives in the children in Candeo kids, leading Candeo youth small groups, leading Salt Company discipleship groups. It happens each time mature couples come to connection groups with young parents and help them know how to navigate that season of life. Women of Candeo, you are absolutely crushing it. You are Titus as two women. And Paul would look at the women in this church and he would be so encouraged and he would say, more, more, more of what you are already doing. Older women who are not engaged, look at your sisters and step into the game and discipling the next generation. Younger women, seek out relationships with older women in our church and learn from their wisdom. Older believers, Be a multi-generational church for the next generation. Be a church family for the the younger emerging generation. We need your wisdom. We need access to your life to see the example of godliness that is present in you. To see the example of dignity, integrity, character, self-control. We need you to teach us. So what could this look like? Older believers, you're like, okay, I, I, do, I want to step into discipling younger believers. How, what does that look like? Well, it might look like you talking to Chris nee or Drew Marchesani. How do I get into a Candeo kids classroom? How do I get into Candeo youth? Maybe you want to impact college students. Well, we have students serving all over the place on Sunday mornings. What if next time you're on welcome team with a college student, you just invite them to lunch and say, hey, can I take you to coffee and hear about what's going on in your life? or you're serving in Candeo Kids with a college student. You can talk, like they're, two, like they're two-year-olds, they kinda know what they're doing. Like You can talk to that college student and be like, hey, like, tell me about your life. Get to know them, invite them to coffee. In the men's and women's studies, don't just sit at a table with your peers, shake it up. Sit with some students. We will have college students at the Job study. What would it look like for you to intentionally go sit with them, get to know them, open scripture with them and teach them? Here's another way. We need as a church, eight new connection groups to start this summer. And for some of you, as great as the relationships you have present in your connection group right now among your peers, some of you need to see a greater mission to disciple the younger generation and say, man, I love my friends but I'm in the older generation and I wanna leave a legacy for the gospel. I'm gonna start one of these eight connection groups this summer. Look, if you're in the older generation, we absolutely want you to be cared for and loved, known and have friends here. But we also need you to disciple us. What would it look like for you to step away from your connection group to start a new connection group where you began to teach us what it looks like to follow Christ? Older men, what would it look like for you to carve out one lunch a month, two lunches a month, where you pulled aside a young dad and just encouraged him, heard what tensions he's facing, hear what's going on in their marriage, in their family? You might say, well, I don't know any young dads. Well, okay, if you've got kids ages five or younger, would you just raise your hand real quick? Like literally, would you just raise your hand if you've got a kid five or younger? Okay, older men, take note, hands up, hands up, keep the hands up, older men, take note, Here's your lunch appointment for the mar- month of March, okay? Like, seriously, take advantage of the context where we are, have multi-generational expressions. Don't just play the victim card, like, oh, I don't know, it's not super easy to meet people. You're a 60-year-old man. Like, come on, like, just go meet a young dad. Can I take you to lunch? Yes is gonna be the answer. If anyone offered me any food, I'd say yes. Like, this is not hard. We want to create avenues and pathways that, this make, that makes it really easy to do this. But it also is super simple. Don't make it harder than it needs to be. Take Jacob Dubin out to lunch this month and just say, hey, man, like, what's it like? How's your sleep? How's your marriage? Like, Jacob would love that. And older men, we need you. We need you. We need you. Older women, we need you. My wife needs you. There are things that only you can teach us. Don't be content to be a a church family with the next generation. And don't you dare be a church family against the next generation. Be a church family for the next generation. Embrace your assignment to disciple Here's the third group and the last one for today. Paul shifts to those who are to receive discipleship and addresses younger women. Here's what he says younger women are to be marked by, verses four through five. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. Seven encouragements from Paul to younger women. Which at the start of the new year, when uh, Natalie saw resolutions, she's she saw like a list of twenty. She's like, that's overwhelming as a new mom. So hopefully, seven feels better. But here's where we're at: love their husbands. This is one of the few times the Bible calls wives to love their husbands. There's co- to- constant commands for husbands to love their wives, but here is the command: wives, love your husbands. Married women, don't just settle on being roommates. Don't just go through life together. Love your husband. Cultivate cultivate your relationship. Ask yourself, how can I be an encouragement to him? Love your children. That one feels obvious, but it's so important. Love your children. Delight in them. Enjoy them. Refuse to see them as a burden or annoying. Care for them and speak into their life. Have fun with them and laugh with them. Bring them up in the Lord. Discipline them and instruct them. Be self-controlled. This virtue appears, like I said, in all four groups. It's just such a mark of godliness. Control your desires. Be disciplined. Pure in your godliness and in your character, pursue purity. Avoid sin. Be workers at home. Don't get hung up on this. Paul is not saying this is the exclusive place to work. He just led Lydia to Christ in Philippi, who was a dealer in purple uh, purple cloth, a woman of great career. He worked with Priscilla, an entrepreneurial woman who made tents. He knows that women work, and women were working in the first century. But what Paul is saying is have a vision for your home. Mothers, you have a unique stewardship inside your home to see that as your primary vocation in this season. Steward that Calling well. Embrace that unique stewardship. Kindness. Young women cultivate kindness and gentleness. Are you a life-giving presence in every sphere that you enter? Lastly, be marked by submissiveness to their own husbands. Respect and honor the unique stewardship God has given your husband in your home. He's given him the role of leader. Now, this idea of headship and submission inside marriage, I know it raises alarm bells for many of us. That's why next month in April, our elders are actually going to take three topics and just present them to our church, and gender roles inside the church and family is one of those. So in April next month, we'll have an entire Sunday morning where we unpack our understanding of complementarian theology. But here's what I'll say today. God created men and women in his image, meaning that all men and women carry equal value, dignity, and worth in the eyes of God. And he assigned them unique roles, specifically in the life of the church and the home. That is a summary of complementarian theology. Equal in value, dignity, and worth and a unique role inside the church and the home. He's called men to lovingly lead their families, to follow in the footsteps of Christ who laid down his life so that the bride, his bride, the church, could flourish. And he's called women inside their marriages to take on the posture of the church who submits to Christ. Men and women, husband, wife, two equals, the husband sub- serving his wife through his leadership and the wife serving her husband through submission. When this happens, it gives the world a picture of Christ. Christ being equal to God, submitted to the Father, who sovereignly used his authority for the flourishing of the world. Those are the instructions to the younger women. Okay, now step back again. Why? Why does Paul want this dynamic to be present in the church? Well, what is the last thing that he says to younger women? So that God's word will not be slandered. Now, this is specifically said to younger women, but this is in the context of all of chapter two. All of chapter two is one section in Titus. And this idea of how we function as a church family will come up multiple times. The idea will come up again, verse eight, with Titus' character and dignity, leaving the opponents nothing to accuse him of. Verse 10 again, as slaves and masters relate to one another in a godly way, they will adorn the teaching of God. What is the point Paul is making in all of chapter two? The point he's making is nothing has more potential to reveal the beauty of the gospel than a family. That is true for a human family, and that is true for a church family. Which means the issue of being a church family for the next generation is not optional. Discipleship is not optional. Embracing your assignment in the family is not optional. A family gives the world a tangible picture of the gospel. Nothing else can adorn the gospel like a family. It can show its beauty. Why? Well, think about what's true in a healthy church family. Love, love that goes beyond worldly divisions and classes. Forgiveness and grace, members who aren't self-absorbed but selfless, sacrifice as the older generation cares and disciples for the younger generation, unity not allowing silly myths and genealogies to divide us but uniting under Christ, the dynamics of authority and submission as as the godly fathers of the church lead us and we as the members joyfully submit to them and the church embracing its mission to the world to send and to seek after the lost and brokenhearted. What does a church become when all those things are true? A picture of God himself. Who is God? Well, the triune God, there is love, an eternal love that is present between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Within the Trinity, not one member is orient, is the orienting center, but they revolve one another, creating what C.S. Lewis referred to as the dance of the Trinity. Each person glorifying and being glorified by the others. Three distinct persons, yet they are unified as one God, unity. The beauty of authority and submission is seen as the Father sovereignly uses his authority for the flourishing of others in the world. The Son, though equally God, joyfully submitting to the Father's authority, the Spirit magnifying the beauties of the Son to exalt him and shine a spotlight on Christ, not himself. And all of them fiercely focused on their mission that the knowledge of their glory would fill the earth as the waters cover the seas, that to redeem lost and broken-hearted image bearers. Our family, like nothing else in creation, gives the world a picture of God himself, which means if the church is going to have a gospel impact, it must function like a family. Now every sword has two edges. Not only do we have the greatest potential to adorn the gospel, but we also have the greatest potential to slander it. Discipleship, family, proclaiming sound teaching, living lives of godliness, these aren't optional. Our failure to be and to become a family slanders the gospel. Our failure to embrace God's assignment for us as members slanders the gospel. So what happens when we get this wrong? Well, we look back to the bridegroom. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot, or wrinkle, or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Christ is the hope of the church. He bled for her, and by his grace, he is cleansing her, washing her so that she shines in brilliance at the wedding supper of the Lamb, so that in her, the beauties of the gospel would be revealed. Until then, there will be failures. There will be hurts. There will be moments where we slander the gospel, but by his grace and his blood, he is cleansing us, the family of God, so that the beauty of the gospel would shine. Embrace your assignment. Let us be a multi-generational church with a next generation focus so that the gospel would shine in brilliance here. Let's pray. God, we pray that our church would give the world a picture of you, of your love, of your unity, of your covenant relationship that you have within yourself and the grace that you have shown us. God, let us be a church family that is marked by the qualities described in Titus 2. A church marked by dignity, integrity, a godliness of our lives, and a church that is not content to let the gospel baton drop with our generation, but to to remain focused on entrusting the gospel to the next generation, generation after generation. And God, thank you for the hope of Christ that though we will fail and get this wrong from time to time, God, it is you that are cleansing us and washing us by your word to make us holy and blameless in your presence. Lord, we love you. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.